Welcome to episode 139. This week, we are actually rebroadcasting episode 67. Now, follow me. This is actually from 2017, and it's about a book, How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp, that really captured my imagination at the time and was so powerful that it still shapes how I think about the relationship of marketing impressions to the power of building brand and the downstream effects on keeping a client. Also, the funny thing here is they, we also talk about mental decay, the fact that brand memory fades over time, just like, follow me, your memory of this episode. So I'm excited to rebroadcast it, and I hope you enjoy it. Is it really cheaper to keep an existing donor rather than get a new one? Today in the podcast, we are exploring a lot of the myths around marketing in the nonprofit sector. This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode 67. Today on the podcast, we are doing a lot of nonprofit marketing myth busting, which is awesome because I read this book called How Brands Grow by Professor Byron Sharp, and I tracked him down because the book was so contrary to so many of the things that I think we're sort of taught out of hand without any data backing them up, such as, is it cheaper to keep an existing customer than a new one? We're often automatically assuming that it's easier and cheaper to keep an existing one. They actually use data to explore many myths that included uh, that I think a lot of the not-for-profit sector buys into all too quickly, like should we spend all our money in a focused burst or should we spread it out over time? They have the numbers and they were kind enough to sit down with me. So today I am speaking with Dr. Margaret Faulkner, who is a senior research associate at the uh, University of South Australia in the business school there. And we are going to get so geeky. You may have to listen to this twice or three times. So let's get into it. I'm here with Dr. Margaret Faulkner, the senior research associate Einhorn Bass Institute for Marketing Science at the Business School in the University of South Australia. How's it going, Margaret? It's going well. Thanks, George. Well, brilliant. I know it's early in the morning, so I appreciate you joining uh, joining us. Uh, can you fill in a bit more detail about uh, what you do in this field? Okay, I'm at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and we're the um, largest research institute into marketing, marketing science in the world. And we're based in Adelaide, which um, most people have heard of Australia, and Adelaide's in South Australia. And what I do there is I work with our corporate sponsors, but my specific research area is, is looking at taking the same laws of marketing and do they apply for charities and the nonprofit sector? That's the area where I'm most interested in, but obviously I work across you know, big international brands as well and looking at brand management and uh, effectiveness of their marketing and things like that. So this is really fun for me because I came across uh, the work of one of your colleagues, Professor Byron Sharp, uh, inside of How Brands Grow, and it seems like your work actually sort of unmasks a lot of myths about marketing. Yeah, you would think that um, 
you know, marketing has been going for a while. It is quite a young science, but Andrew Ehrenberg and Frank Bass, who we're um, named after our institute, they were like the four founders in taking this scientific evidence-based approach to marketing. And it's not new. A lot of the laws that we mention and work with have been around for decades, you know, 40, uh, 50 years going on to knowing that these patterns occur. But it's still a revelation, and not just for charities or not-for-profit, but just, you know, many marketers out there. It is turning their worlds upside down still. And that's what we do at the Institute, try and get people to challenge some of the assumptions that they're not even aware that they operate under and that sets their strategies and their marketing agendas. So we're talking about assumptions. Uh, do you have any classic assumptions that you yourself are just like, I wish every not-for-profit just knew this was uh, an absolute shot in the dark, that you should know the, the truth about this because it is such a misnomer? Yeah, I mean, the double jeopardy uh, law and just understanding the importance of your brand size in the market is one that I think everyone just doesn't appreciate. And also, I suppose, how important splitting things uh, by user and non-users or supporters and non-supporters. So anything we look at marketing data-wise, you can interpret it in a uh, way that makes more sense in terms of competition and, you know, who – you're sharing customers with once you understand you need to order everything by market size. But I suppose my biggest thing from a charity not-for-profit um, thing is the branding and understanding that branding is an asset and you're building up and it takes time to build up these market-based assets. And I think people just come in and with you know good intentions just get rid of a lot of um, memory structures that have been built up years upon years that help trigger a response to say that we'll support a charity. So really understanding how important branding is and it's not just your brand name, it's not just your logo, it can be many more things than that. And you know, just don't throw those things away without a challenge about, hold on, is this actually helping people know we exist? Is it helping us to think, you know, people to think about us or making it easy for them to find us when they do want to give us support? So, Margaret, I need you to explain the concept of double jeopardy because most Americans look at it as a delightful show on television that we watch um, yes. in the second round led by Alex Trebek. And okay. I need you to describe this to me as though I were a 12-year-old. Okay. Um, well, it was actually first noticed by William McPhee, who is an American from Columbia University, and he was a sociologist in the 19, you know, early 1960s. He noticed that there was this pattern, and it was actually looking at radio announcers and their popularity, and he also you know, looked at other things such as comic strips. So he thought it was unfair that the really unpopular items or presenters or announcers suffered twice, hence the double jeopardy. So the first jeopardy is they have less people, that's why they're less popular, like less people um, listen to them or read the comic strips or whatever the thing is, they're just less popular. So there's less people who know about them or experience whatever they have to offer. And the second jeopardy is the people who do use them do it less often than they do other things. So they might listen to this less popular announcer, but there's actually another more popular announcer they're listening to more. So that's the second jeopardy. Not only do they have less people, but whatever the loyalty metric you're looking at will be slightly less for the less popular item and much um, many more people for the popular 
and slightly higher loyalty. So there is a variance in two things, two variables. What we call the penetration, which is the number of people who are supporting you in that time frame or buying from you if it's um, a product-based uh, item, and the frequency of purchase or frequency of giving support would be a behaviour loyalty metric, and you would see a variance there. If you order everything by the size, the size of the customer base or supporter base, you would see that there will be a slight trend going down. So people might give to you twice in that time period on average across all the brands, but it might be, say, 2.2 or 2.3 for the biggest charity, and maybe it's 1.7 or 1.6 for the smallest. So loyalty will vary, but it doesn't vary by as much as we see. It might be 20 times, you know, bigger, the biggest charity versus a smaller one that we're looking at. So there's this double jeopardy, but it's the penetration or the size of your customer base or supporter base that's going to vary the most to explain why one brand is bigger than another as a charity or whether it's anything else that you're in the market for. I like the way that you sort of talk about loyalty. So in the for-profit sector, loyalty is like, all right, somebody is going to buy this product quote-unquote loyally they're going to keep coming back though obviously in your research you show that 100 percent loyalty is a myth in the not-for-profit sector it's pretty clear to us that we don't have 100 percent loyalty so how or and it's not possible because people are going to give to the things they care about and that won't just be your organization how does this shift for not-for-profits how should they be thinking about it yeah so we find i mean you can't have 100 percent loyalty and but it's very um, in a repertoire market. So there's two different types of markets generally. You could say you either subscribe to something like an insurance um, company or you might sign up and um, it's electrician uh, electricity being presented you know, to your home. You can't just go changing providers without you know, a lot of hassle. So that's a subscription market versus a repertoire market where there might be three or four or, you know, more or less um, different types of organisations that could meet your needs depending on the occasion. So this is where charities were interesting to say, is that a repertoire market or a subscription market? Because some people will sign up like uh, for World Vision and sponsor a child for years and years and years. But do they do other things as well? Yes, they might also sign up to do an animal uh, organisation or a welfare organisation, but then they might see somebody in the street and give them an ad hoc thing. Um, but what we see difference in loyalty is in the subscription markets, such as insurance or banking, we would have a high number of people solely going to one provider, not always um, you know, anything close to 100% because there might be a multiple you know, credit card I have in a bank loan and things like that. But in the repertoire markets, we see um, maybe 10% or you know less of people only giving to that one brand. And it doesn't vary uh, too much in terms of um, there's no one we see out there that will have 100% and, it, and that's all that they get. They're only people who are only going to give them 100%. And the reason um, why this is, I suppose, a different way of thinking about loyalty is we've had textbooks tell us that you, you should be trying to get people to only you know, be loyal beyond reason to you. And then you have this view of, well, if they're giving to somebody else, they can't be loyal, can they? But that's normal. The normal thing is we will have people giving to multiple charities. Um, don't get upset if you know, you're 
you run your statistics and if you do have information, which a lot of the people don't, about who else people are giving to, you'll see you're just one of many charities that, that you've been giving to. And that's fine. If you're a big charity, um, you obviously have the benefit of um, more people giving to you and giving to you a bit more regularly. If you're a medium-sized charity, you'll know that you'll be sharing more of your supporters with the bigger charities and fewer with the smaller charities. So it gives you an idea once you know the laws about what to expect, who would you be competing most closely to, and generally it's based on the size of the charity that, that gives you an indication of who your competitors are, not their positioning in the market or um, other things. So another way also that you uh, that you talk about loyalty is with regard to you know sort of keeping an existing customer and in the U.S. you know sadly or not so sadly we've shown based on the U.S. giving trends that we only retain about twenty percent of first time givers to our organizations year over year. How does that strike you? And then how do I think about that as a as a fundraiser for a mid size not for profit? Yeah, I think it's, first of all, that is the statistic, so that's the reality. And then you have to understand why is that happening. So is it um, that they're only going to give once a year and once every second year or every third year? It might be that's their normal pattern for your charity of reengaging with you. And knowing that, you know, this idea of having – the right people and the right customers or the right uh, volunteers, donors, whoever, that are going to be the people that give to you three, four, five times a year, maybe that's just, you know, unrealistic to have. So understanding that you will have a lot of people sort of coming in and out over a time frame, and it might be different people. So some people who are really heavily supporters in one year People will go, okay, I want to retain those because the assumption will be they'll be the heaviest supporters again next year. Well, our research and research in other markets will show that you can't tag somebody and say they're going to be the heavy supporter and expect that they'll continue to be your heaviest supporter. It might be um, you know, 40% or 60% of those who were classified as the biggest donors will stay that for you next year. So you'll still have about the same percentage being heavy versus medium. We call it, say, a lighter or less frequent donor or supporter. Um, but the number of people in each bucket, who those individuals are, will change. All right. So let me push this a bit farther. I am I'm, I'm a fundraiser. I'm listening to this, and I'm looking at my year's activities. And I know this, and it's driving me nuts, that people that have already opened their wallet to us last year. They literally gave to us last year. And I know that in the in the business world that keeping an existing customer is much cheaper than acquiring a new one because that's what everyone says. Do I focus on like my energy on like renewing these people or do I go out there fishing for new people? Yeah, and I know where that's coming from because we have that um said to us quite often that, you know, of course, you know, it will be five times more expensive or whatever the statistic people pull out. And a lot of it, when you follow it back, you go, well, where do you get that idea from? Is it coming from your own data or is it a just an assumption? And uh, a gentleman called Reichel you know, claimed in the Harvard Business Review um, some years back um, that if only you could retain those um, 
the existing customers and you could reduce the amount of you know decline that you have out of your your numbers every year the defection rate by five percent which you know sounds a small number that five percent so his uh, claims were not empirical as in there wasn't evidence that you could drop it by five percent but it was just a thought you know if you could do it from you know re reduce the re defection from 15 percent to 10 percent that would you know give you this huge improvement so that's where you should focus all your energy but that reduction isn't so small um, in uh, how brands grow fire and sharp uh, 2010 um, talked about this and said it's actually a 33 a third reduction in the number of customers that would be leaving you to actually achieve what he was uh, setting out and that's no mean feat like we don't see that happen um, it costs a lot of money to be able to even get anywhere close to doing that and the cost of actually retaining the people and the energy and, and time uh, wasn't looked at compared to if you put that energy and time into other things such as acquiring. And the other thing I suppose to bring in there is a lot of people leave us for no fault of our own. Like As marketers, you could be doing the best job out at servicing and rewarding and thanking people uh, but they'll just stop donating or supporting you for reasons such as they've moved away from where your charity is operating, they've died, they've you know, changed lifestyle, they don't have the disposable income or they've moved on to another stage of their life. So supporting a child is was maybe modelling for their own family um, to support others uh, less fortunate and then they've moved out of home so now they've focused on other things. So you can't um, – it was actually a small percentage of things that the marketer could actually do in terms of uh, changing that defection rate, and that's why it was a conceptual idea rather than um, one that's driven by evidence. So we make all our decisions looking at the evidence about what's realistic, what's possible, and if you only focused on your existing customers and you only focused on those who were the most supportive, you're going to slowly sh shrink your – supporter base and then just decline as as an organization making you less effective less useful for society because you'll have less uh, support to be able to do the things that are needed i love this and it this is one of the things that sort of hit me like a truck the keeping of an existing customer was so ingrained into the sort of lore of business and marketing for me that when it came up that basically this all came about from a theoretical approach to an article written, you know, a decade ago. And instead, it's leading you toward fighting against something like gravity. So, you know, I'm a runner, and it's as though someone said, you know, you could run a lot faster if you reduced gravity by 10%. And you're like, but there's a natural order of things. The law of double jeopardy literally states that you're just, you're not going to achieve these absolutes um, in terms of loyalty, in terms of penetration. And it's really driven, coming back to it, it's really driven by how many new people you're bringing in, how many new folks that you're continuing to t sort of touch. Am I, am I getting this right? Yeah, so when even looking at, we've looked obviously more at um, non, uh, I suppose not charities, but we've got a lot more data from our, you know, people who do brand trackers and things like that, which unfortunately we don't have access to the same type of thing in the charity not-for-profit field, but a lot of other um, sectors by looking at the brands and highlighting those that have grown as well as those who have declined and tracking what's gone on, you can see that it's not the 
number of people that are leaving them that's the difference. The difference about whether you grow or whether you decline is looking at your acquisition rates. So you are, if you stop focusing on acquisition and only focused on reduction of defection, you know, that's not going to give you the outcome you need. I mean, we're not, I don't want anyone listening to this to take away, okay, let's stop doing anything. <laughs> you know, we don't want, we're just saying rebalance it. I think it's got out of balance to this. It's all about our existing people. And not and when has someone gone? If they haven't done anything for six months, have they gone? Twelve months, have they gone? You've set a figure in your own heads about when they're active or a supporter or not a supporter. But from their perspective, they might still be thinking they're supporting you. They just haven't had that opportunity come around again for them to feel like this is the time to do it, they haven't been asked or, you know, so really thinking about you know, what are you doing to make it easy for them to, to give you support and, you know, maybe not bombarding them all the time, uh, expecting and making them feel guilty that they're not giving you such frequent support because that may not be realistic for them. Their pattern of your, you know, being a supporter might just be, as I said, once a year or once every two years and that's fine because you need it, you need everybody, the whole range. Some people will give you to you very infrequently. Some people will do it, you know, whatever you say is regular. And then some people will be very active. But those people at that end who are the most active supporters, they're the rarest and the smallest group. And we don't see any charity doing, you know, a fantastic job of only getting those people, which is where I think a lot of strategies. We just want to recruit those people. We just want to focus on them. But you look at your profile across all the different charities, they all look the same in terms of everyone has the same distribution of, you know, most people give to you, you know, once. And then the next most frequent one might be twice a year, you know, whatever the time frame is. But majority of people are giving to you zero times. You know, they're not giving, they might be supporters of charities, but not getting around to your brand. So what can you do to actually get more of the people who support charities to even know you exist and to next time they're ready? So let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about this awareness because another big thing in the nonprofit sector is the focus on the, the seasonality and especially around holidays. However, another stat that's put out by, by Blackbaud the other year uh, in charitable giving showed that about 17% of overall giving happened in December, which you know, 17% is not 90%. And I'm willing to bet if we looked at a lot of people's budgets and marketing efforts, 90% of that effort went into December, though it's not there. So my question to you is how do we think about this sort of burst versus continuity, you know, even spread of ad spend and, and effort? Well, you know, again, our general finding with the Institute is if you're doing this burst strategy, whether it's you know, in marketing, it might be a new product launch has come out and put all this effort in charities. You probably see it with, oh, let's refresh the brand. It's old and, and they see an increase in support come after they rebrand because not because they've rebranded, just because they've reminded people they exist. So they could say that, you know, my thing would be if you've got branding elements that people already know and are useful for you, take that money and spend it in reminding them that you exist and don't wait for it to be once every five years or three years or once a year at December. You need to, um, people will give, as you're saying, all over the 12-month period. It's not just a Christmas time thing. And if you're only reminding them that you exist and need support in Christmas time, all those other months, you, you know, you're losing that opportunity. So you need to 
Um, and people's memories decay over time. So even if you did the most fantastic, you know, reached everybody, you know, and people will be trying to do multiple times all at one small period, you're much better off to reach everybody, you know, once at that time and then take that money and resources and keep reminding the market, you know, at different points of the year, refreshing that, yep, this is a charity that needs our support. This is an easy one. Um, it will work for me in terms of, um, there's no barriers or few barriers to giving support, whether it's volunteering, money, whatever they're looking for. So you said the the term there, memory decay, which just means humans forget stuff and they forget it mighty quickly. And so we need to remind them, which leads me to my next question, I guess, about advertising and outreach. You know, how do you think about the frequency versus reach, i.e., you know, do I want to spend money reminding people in your words, reminding them that we exist and the same people, or do I want to spend those dollars on finding fresh new minds to to introduce myself to as a not-for-profit? Yeah, so we obviously would say, first of all, you know, is your – define your market and our thing is target the whole market. So rather than just narrowly – focusing on uh, the younger people or the older people, you probably look at your donor base. So have a look at who is currently giving to you. And I'll say chances are, unless you've been very narrow in your and exec, you know, been able to execute it, so only reaching a certain target, you would have everybody giving you support. So it's important for you to remind all of those potential people, not just your existing people, that you need their support. And so to do that, it's think about have you reached everybody at least once who is a potential supporter before you go and reach the same people again a second time or a third or fourth or fifth time. Once everyone has been reached, then you go, okay, then um, media choices that might be um, this is more likely to reach this profile of people and then I know that this other medium will actually have a different type of profile or a different thing so you're not just picking media or picking avenues to reach people that are narrow um, you want to try and have more of a like that mass I did my PhD looking at fundraising direct mail and you can have things such as response rate and you could send out mailings to a very select group and you report back up to your board and other people your response rate and you can be feel very impressive you know in terms of what you've achieved but look at the absolute numbers of people you've reached and what are you doing to your brand in terms of are you growing that potential supporter base that when you need to um, go out again otherwise you're going to have a smaller number that you'll be able to go out to so I would be looking at the metrics that you're reporting as well and making sure you're keeping an eye on that supporter base number and not just looking at things like response rates to when you are only going out to a very small group of people. Yeah. So we're talking about the, you know, memory decay. And it's kind of funny because I got this real sense that the way you and your colleagues sort of look at the humans as as though we're like little walking probability machines where, you know, one out of 300 times, I'm going to buy a Coke. One out of 400 times, I'm going to donate to the Red Cross. And in this, you talk about an, a concept called mental availability. How can, how can, first off, can you describe what the heck mental availability means? And then how do nonprofits build these types of memory links? Yep. So mental availability is just simply um, making it easy to be thought of. Or well, what's, in, back into the probability, what's a 
probability or the propensity of someone to think of us. So when they're next in a situation where they could give us support, whether it's donating clothes or loose change at the airport or, or whatever, you know, what's um, the idea of my brand being one that they're considering? So are you in the race? So this is what one way we think about mental availability. There's so many in, in charities, um, Australia, America, you know, there's thousands of different worthy charities. So if you are inclined to give support to somebody, people will screen out the majority of those. There's only a few that they are thinking of. So if you're not in that select few, you're not in, even in the rates, even though you may have the best you know, need um, requirement out there, they're not even thinking of you. They're not even getting down to you know, why you're going to make more impact than another one. So this is why the big charities you know, are able to have a benefit over the smaller ones because we're naturally just notice them, they're more in the market. We're more likely, if, if someone's a very light supporter of charities, meaning they're infrequently giving support, chances are it's going to be the bigger ones that they're going to think of. Like if there's a disaster, it's Red Cross. So that helps, obviously, an organisation such as Red Cross um, because they're not having to do anything uh, always hard to work when there's a disaster. People might naturally go onto their website or see that um, people in the Red Cross are very good at using their distinctive assets in terms of their branding to know, okay, they're out there helping, they're the people I need to, to go and uh, support as well. So there's different ways that you can work um, as a brand to make sure you're doing everything to be in that race and to be thought of. And some of that is uh, another concept called category entry points. So rather than thinking of I'm a charity or I'm an animal charity or health charity, take it back to what are the occasions that the supporter might be thinking about giving support and are you one of those brands that might be thought of? Yeah, so let's say more here, you know, the we're all walking probabilities running around and if we have like no mental availability, if I don't even have a, you know, it's a zero out of zero chances, I'm not going to find your organization. How do you think about the relationship of building a brand as a concept in people's minds and then how do I associate that brand with other memory links, other category entry points um, for, you know, a mid-sized nonprofit? Yeah, so the brand is needs to be anchored to, to something. So now I'm going back into associative network th theories, and, and these have been around for, you know, thousands of years in terms of um, there's different ways that people have always thought about memory and going back to understanding how when you ask somebody to sort of think out loud, you'll find out that one thought leads to another thought. And so it's in early in the morning. If I want caffeine, um, I want to you know, feel like more awake, I'll be thinking about, well, you know, can I get a coffee or a cup of tea or whatever your caffeine thing is for the day? So then that leads you on to different, where shall I go get it, what brands, you know, might eventually come out. But you don't get to it the way that we as marketers might often be thinking about our brand. So we might ask them in a battery of, you know, survey questions, you know, when you're thinking about animal charities, you know, which charity do you think of? And that's the way that we report. We go, look, we do really well there. But how often is someone walking around going, oh, I'm thinking about animal charities now? They're, they're not. They're thinking about I want to, um, it might be something like, 
uh, I'm looking for, to adopt a pet, so that might be closer to that one. But it might just be I've got some loose change and I see um, a collection tin and it's going to go to whoever has the collection tin. So it's a different way of um, thinking is needed to be able to you know, interpret some of the things we have at the Institute. Yeah, it's and, very... It's very interesting. I mean, you're just bringing up, oh, I'm also just going to give to whoever has the tin, right? Whoever happens to be asking right in front of me, which kind of brings us to physical availability. Can you speak to how not-for-profits should be making it easier to give and how that relates to how we're, we're trying to drive our organizations forward? Yeah, so it's not, I said, you know, memory is really important. So being um, easy to be thought of as the charity in, in multiple different occasions that people might evoke to say this is when I want to support is one say side of the coin. Physical availability is the other one because there's no point thinking about I want to support somebody if it, it then becomes too much of a hassle. I just, you know, give up before I've actually, you know, gone through and converted through and become a donor. So the physical availability are the things about uh, making it easy to give support. And we break this up into three different areas. So your presence, which is there's the collection tin and it just happens to be at the end of the checkout or when I'm buying stuff and I don't want to put the loose change back into my wallet or wherever, I can just drop it in there. Um, that makes it easy for me to give. Um, there's other things about, you know, online, you know, uh, am I easy to find? However, if someone decides to do the searching to find the charity or being able to have a URL they'll remember and, and be able to go direct, whatever that is. But even when you're on there, how easy is it to find on the website of how to give a donation? How many steps and clicks does it take? So that is an area you could be looking at. The relevance is another area, and that is just thinking about, is it in the form that I want? So from a marketing uh, product perspective, it might be when I'm traveling and I'm going on an airplane flight, I've got the new regulations, or not that new now, but, you know, people who came out with their travel size, you know, packs that were allowed on the plane probably did quite well, especially if they were sitting at the airport ready to go. Um, but for a charity, it might be, well, looking about what's, how do they want to give support? Do we force them to only do the, the regular giving um whereas i just want i don't want to sign up for things i just want to you know give some money away today and not be the regular person that they would like because of course they want us to be regular because over the 12 months i'd give more than if i just do it in, in an ad hoc basis so strategically i can see why the charities want to do that but you've got to think about is it actually stopping some other people who potentially would give to your cause from doing it and how do you manage that so are you providing uh, an opportunity for them to give the support how they would like to give it, not just always how you want it or the setup to do it. And uh, the last thing is uh, prominence. So this is for charities. There's just so many out there. I, you might be able to get a um, ad campaign um, supported, uh, some pro bono support, or you might be a big organisation that can actually fund it yourself. But there's so many charities out there that they you might think you're very different, but from the supporter side of it, how do they take away that it was you that's asking for support and next time they should give it to you and not one of the other charities that are big or known in your area? So that's where the branding part is really important to make sure they can easily spot you 
uh, in the physical location, whether that's online or, you know, physically in an op shop. Um, what are you looking for? So something that, you know, mid-sized, small not-for-profits deal with after, you know, they get started, maybe they have spent a while, we'll call it five years or so, building up their brand name, and then they realize, you know, this doesn't really fit what we're doing. Should people switch their brands along the way? What do you think about when you hear someone say, you know, we're going to update our brand logo or even our brand name? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, does anyone know you? Um, and I'm obviously a researcher, so I always would say you need to go out to the market. So it's not just a matter of what you and your executive think. You should always go out to your supporter base um, and not just your current supporters, but those who maybe have supported you in the past or those who don't know you exist but are potentially. So you need to go wider than just the most you might think you're valuable supporters and check does anybody else know that brand name does anybody else know the logo it's not just a logo it could be other elements it could be a tagline you've been using or a jingle that you or music you used to play you know it may have been left for a little while but a lot of people in the population if you kept using it would help you signal it's the brand the other thing is um there was an interesting um Thing online at the end of last year, Grey London. I don't know if you know, it's a creative agency based in London, and they had put out an offer for pro bono to change the logo of WWF. So I'm sure you, most people, um, if you see the logo of the giant panda, you think of WWF, and it's uh, worked well in the past, obviously because it was an endangered animal, and that's what they were supporting. And so their premise was the numbers of pandas has grown. They've done a fabulous job. Uh, they've come off the endangered species list. Therefore, they need to change their logo to something that does need more support and we will do it for you pro bono. And they even came up with images and it was a polar bear vanishing. And so it was just this little nose and, you know, uh, head features left. And so you sit there and go, okay, why would you do that? So their premise is it need, they need a refresh. It's been there for, you know, close on to 50 years, uh, but it's no longer endangered. We have to change it to keep it relevant. And what they've missed is the job of the branding elements is not to give meaning. The job is to identify quickly, to do that hard work. Mental availability needs more than just knowing it's this brand. There might be messages and relevance and things like that that you do in your campaigns. That's different to your branding elements. The branding elements, all their role is is to identify you as quickly as possible and then the rest of your communication does the work about building the um, associations that are anchored to that brand. So I, I just thought it was quite crazy they would even be putting that out there, uh, saying that you would change something that is just such an iconic lo um, logo. Why would you give that away? That's that market-based asset being just thrown away. So obviously you can talk about polar bear numbers and still have a giant panda there. It's, they're two different notions. It's interesting because uh, in the book, uh, you know, Professor Sharp speaks about in How Brands Grow, speaks about the difference between Coke and Pepsi, at least from a logo perspective and how, you know, you can you can visualize right now the Coke logo, like stop and visualize it. Now for me, like visualize the Pepsi logo because sadly that, that changes every, you know, some odd years. 
um, as you go through. Can you talk to me a little bit, you know, as we talk about mental availability, uh, you know, the idea of the availability heuristic and what familiarity means when we're making a choice to buy? Yeah, so what it, it just sort of helps, isn't it, that oh, we have so much information and if something is familiar, we're just more drawn to it in terms of it just is easier for us. We're, you know, we call our, just say we're probability people, but we also call it as we see it. And the evidence shows us, you know, people are these cognitive misers in terms of our bodies are built to actually not do a lot of thinking, to be able to make decisions quickly and have these heuristic cues that just help us along the way. If we actually stopped and looked at everything that we were exposed to and if we looked at everything we should put in our baskets in the shopping trolley or you know any other decision we make in our lives, uh, we'd never get anything done. There's only 24 hours in the day. So our, we were actually hardwired to actually use some of these cues. So one of them is if something is familiar – um, and this is why we see this usage bias that we need to split. If someone has actually had an experience with the brand, they're going to be more likely to say anything about the brand. Like they've just got knowledge and memory structures built in that they can retrieve. Um, whereas if you're a non-user, your own experience that you have or exposure is through advertising or communication um, campaign. So it's going to be much less. So you have, and the big brands have more past and current users in their, um, you know, the field of the potential category uh, buyers. So if you don't sort of take those usage um, bias into uh, consideration, you can, again, misinterpret, you know, things from, you know, the bigger brand to the smaller brand. So there's things that we need to do in analysis, but I suppose back to from the charity perspective, it's um, understanding that, again, why the bigger charities sort of have the benefits because they are familiar um, they are going to be more easily thought of, and that helps us to just quickly, you know, choose them and move on. Yeah. So basically, you know, when we're in that type one thinking, you know, we're cognitive misers, we're looking and sizing things up in a matter of seconds. Is it safe to say that we use familiarity as a proxy for trust and sort of quality? Um, yeah, I don't know if we even probably get to the trust in quality. It's just, you know, you've probably made that decision before when, you know, it's different if you're, and we call it, you know, the, the new people entering the category. So those people may spend a bit more time, but even if you look at the amount of time some people make using decisions, they might use, you know, what my family have done and not actually go through the whole evaluative process themselves. So you're just using, you're, probably not thinking too much of it at all you know we might say it's trust and quality we know that it will do the job or it will you know have the outcome I need and under that we have probably come up with trust and quality as the explanation but it's just you know it's easy I pick it up it works there's really um, not these vast differences from the, the consumer or supporters perspective they're all pretty much the same so you're competing pretty much head-on with every other brand. And the only difference is some are bigger and some are smaller, and therefore, you know, there's um, some benefits they've had from their past marketing efforts and uh, bigger reach. Okay. I could continue to geek out on these topics. I think we've covered a lot of some of the misnomers and topics. So with your permission, I'd like to move on to the rapid-fire round. Okay. <laughs> A tentative okay. <laughs> You're very, you're very brave. Alrighty. Um, 
What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Oh, I don't know if the last year, um, probably Slack we use. I don't know whether that's a, a tech tool. It's more just an app for us to communicate with each other. Just easy to set up groups. We do lots of different project work and uh, groups, so you can just have channels to yourself or do it wider for the, across the whole institute. Can you talk about a mistake that you've made in your career that has shaped the way you do your work? I think it's probably um, a mistake most marketers and all researchers make. You probably assume everybody is as interested in a topic as you are. And um, if I'm guilty of that today, I'm sorry. But, you know, just assuming that, that um, everyone's as passionate. So I think you, I need to step back a bit more and explain the reasons why. So we are so familiar with these laws of marketing. I've, you know, done a um, undergrad, a master's and a PhD. So remembering that they're still new to some people and it takes a while and give people the time it takes to actually go back, look at their own data, do it themselves, and then when they're ready, have the next conversation rather than giving too much all at once, which I've probably done today. What is something coming in the next year, either in your field or your organization, that is getting you excited? Um, I think I'm seeing a momentum in terms of our corporate uh, sponsors and the institute's reach. So, you know, we talk about trying to um, disseminate this knowledge. I mean, this is um, – we're a research institute. Our, I suppose, role and our passion is to actually see that people um, can actually – take the laws of marketing, which, you know, many are not new. It's just what's becoming more new is more people understanding what does it mean strategically and actually starting to see, you know, less um, wastage. And that's probably what drives me is I'd love to work with more people and actually see how can we take the, you know, precious money that people have for marketing and charities and not-for-profits and use it wisely and as effectively as possible and um, thinking about what they're doing in terms of how can they grow mm -hmm. uh, and be more effective. Okay. Do you believe that not-for-profits can successfully go out of business? Well, I um, make polio history. Um, I would like that one to go out of business, you know, if they can find a cure and uh, or they have, you know, the vaccination, those types of things. Yes, they can. What is something that you think either you or your organization should stop doing? Hmm, stop doing uh, meetings. <laughs> cool. All right. Next up, if you had a Harry Potter magical wand and you could wave it across the not-for-profit industry, what would it do? It would make people stop and think about their actions and especially about branding. Don't change the brand without checking first. You're not throwing out an asset. And finally, if you could jump in a hot tub time machine and go back to earlier in your career, what advice would you give yourself? Say you were just graduating from your undergrad. What advice would you give yourself? Follow your passion, I would say. And yeah, just work Surround yourself with people who are passionate and as um, excited as you in whatever endeavor you're trying to do. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. And our final question for you doesn't need to be that rapid, but how do people find you and how do people help you? Right. Um, well, I am based at um, the Business School at University of South Australia, and uh, the Institute has a website, www.marketingscience.info. 
And our Twitter account is at ErenbergBeth on Twitter. And I'm personally very happy to connect with anybody uh, via LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. So I'm um, forward slash Margaret Faulkner. Uh, is my LinkedIn account. I've also got a website at the University of South Australia staff profile page. So there's lots of different ways they can connect with us um, and, you know, very interested to uh, build uh, our network of people that know what we do. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these topics. I'm sure people will be listening and re-listening to it. And uh, have a great day. Thank you very much, George. I will do. I know we covered a lot of topics here, such as mental availability, physical availability, double jeopardy, and a number of other topics. Take a step back, though, and obviously you can re-listen to this, but some of the fundamental elements is they're, they're treating people and looking at people as little probability engines. They're, they're running around and making tons of decisions based on, you know, when we talked about you know, being cognitive misers, limited information by choice sometimes. And so when we are making these choices on the fly, when we're running down the supermarket of life and online, sometimes the fact that we've seen somebody's logo 20 times is enough to say, you know what, that's a reputable charity. That's a reputable brand that I'm going to choose to buy from. My friend's asking, I don't need to go to Charity Navigator and do this research. In our ideal world, when people switch to system two thinking, meaning they're going to spend a bit more time evaluating, that's the perfect world we sort of design for and imagine for the people that donate to our organizations. When in fact, the truth may be frustrating if we think about it because they're giving because their friend just referred them. They're giving because they just happened to be in the right place at the right time and they knew your brand and logo and, and press donate. So take a step back and really think differently about how you're spending your money. Think about which of these myths, maybe it's the let's spend all of our money in December when people give myth or the it's easier to keep an existing customer and keep spending our money there than get a new one. Think about which myths you want to test because I think Margaret was also very, um, very careful not to say that there's absolute truths out there. Be careful of, of the recommendations that are absolute truths. You know, be careful of the 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 myths frankly that get repeated simply because they're easy to remember um, you know uh, think about how you're going to test this and I, I have seen a lot of the ways uh, that they have gone about breaking down the for-profit industry and dispelled a lot of these myths so gosh there's so much to think about and I hope that it wasn't too overwhelming and that you tackle some of these things even if um, even if it is scary or goes against some of the prevailing wisdom maybe that guides your own organization. As always, tons of resources, which are always available at our site, wholewhale.com slash podcast. This was episode number 67. Thanks, as always, for joining us. This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. As always, our music, gregthomasmusic.org. That is gregthomasmusic.org. It's good because you've heard it a lot of times. And as we just learned, familiarity can help breed trust. So again, gregthomasmusic.org. This guy will put together custom bits of music 
for whatever you're trying to create, and people will love it, because what's not to love? It's GregThomasMusic.org. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs>